Our reading this morning is 2 Kings 6, verse 8, to chapter 7, verse 20. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on that place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, tell me, which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha the prophet, who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Go, find out where he is, the king ordered, so that I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He is in Dothan. Then he sent sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened his servants, the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. As the enemy came down towards him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, Strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness, as Elisha had asked. Elisha told them, This is not the road, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will lead you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to Samaria. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so that they can see. Then the Lord opened their eyes, and they looked, and there they were inside Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, Shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill those who have captured you with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. Sometime later, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mobilized his entire army and marched up and laid siege to Samaria. There was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter of a cab of seed pods for five shekels. As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried to him, Help me, my lord, the king. The king replied, If the lord does not help you, where can I get help for you? From the threshing floor? From the wine press? Then he asked her, What's the matter? She answered, this woman said to me, give up your son so that we may eat him today and tomorrow we'll eat my son. So he cooked my son and ate him. The next day I said to her, give up your son so that we may eat him. But she had hidden him. When the king heard the woman's words, he tore his robes. As he went along the wall, the people looked and they saw that under his robes he had sackcloth on his body. He said, may God deal with me be it ever so severely, if the head of Elisha, son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Now Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. The king sent a messenger ahead, but before he arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Don't you see how this murderer is sending someone to cut off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold it shut against him. Is not the sound of his master's footsteps behind him? 
While he was still talking to them, the messenger came down to him. The king said, this disaster is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Elisha replied, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow, a seer of finest flour will sell for a shekel and two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. The officer on whose arm the king was leaning said to the man of God, look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of, heaven, of the heavens, could this happen? You will see it with your own eyes, answered Elisha, but you will not eat any of it. Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there and we will die. And if we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, then we die. At dusk, they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there, for the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army, so that they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp, entered one of the tents and ate and drank. They, then they took the silver, gold and clothes and went off and hid them. They returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and hid them also. Then they said to each other, what we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news and we are keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. So they went and called out to the city gatekeepers and told them, we went into the Aramean camp and no one was there, not a sound of anyone, only tethered horses and donkeys, and the tents left just as they were. The gatekeepers shouted the news and it was reported within the palace. The king got up in the night and said to his officers, I will tell you what the Arameans have done to us. They know we are starving, so they have left the camp to hide in the countryside, thinking they will surely come out, and then we will take them alive and get into the city. One of his officers answered, make some men take five of the horses that are left in the city. Their plight will be like that of all the Israelites left here. Yes, they will only be like all these Israelites who are doomed. So let us send them to find out what happened. So they selected two chariots with their horses and the king sent them after the Aramean army. He commanded the drivers, go and find out what has happened. They followed them as far as the Jordan and they found the whole road strewn with the clothing and equipment the Arameans had thrown away in their headlong flight. So the messengers returned and reported to the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. So a seer of the finest flour sold for a shekel and two seers of barley sold for a shekel, as the Lord had said. Now the king had put the officer on whose arm he leaned in, in charge of the gate, and the people trampled him in the gateway, and he died just as the man of God had foretold when the king came down to his house. It happened as the man of God had said to the king, about this time tomorrow, a seer of the finest flour will, be, will sell for a shekel and two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. The officer had said to the man of God, look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of the heavens, could this happen? The man of God had replied, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat any of it. 
And that is exactly what happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gateway, and he died. This is God's word. Well, good morning, let me add my welcome. My name's uh, Matt Fuller. Thank you, uh, Mark and Ginny, for uh, reading. Quite a long reading, and uh, if you followed it rightly, you see it, it sort of wavers a little bit between, well, sort of horrific tragedy, really, and then comedic farce. It sort of bounces between the two of them. So um, let's pray, and we'll try and make sense of uh, what's going on here. Our great God and Father, you give us at times vivid, memorable, strange stories to help us hold on to truth. And so, Father, please be at work now by your Spirit so we understand these chapters rightly and we hold on to you, the one who is truth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I do think that the question then that this passage or text throws up is, how, how do you respond in challenging times, troubling times, anxious times? How do you respond? At a time when uh, a nation which uh, was once shaped by God's law has drifted a long, long way. Shrinking numbers would call themselves believers uh, at a time when uh, a once glorious economy feels very fragile and uh, neighboring nations look on and think, how can we carve off little bits of their economy for ourselves? Well, that is 740 BC and Israel. And it's not a million miles away where we find ourselves today. Of course, Israel is different. Israel is a, a nation uniquely chosen by God in history at this moment in time. No nation like it before or since. So there's, can't quite draw the parallels. But uh, Israel here in about 740 BC is now largely following after false gods, pagan gods. A few chapters earlier we'd have read that there are only 7,000 believers left in the whole of the kingdom. So what was once a godly nation has shrunk right down. And uh, Israel was once the dominant and most affluent power in the region, an empire upon which the sun didn't set sort of thing. It now is being invaded recurrently. Moab we saw in chapter 3. Here in chapter 6 and 7 it's Syria or Aram, modern day Syria, uh, invading the country repeatedly. And so here what you have in these chapters, if you can try and get yourself into the mindset, here are our people constantly living with the fear of invasion. It's been a few weeks, but if you remember back in chapter five, the narrative revolved around a little girl who had been captured and taken into slavery from Israel uh, into the, uh, the great commander's household, Naaman. So you're, you're living constantly with the fear of, are we going to get invaded tonight? People are going to come and snatch our stuff, out, steal more of our kids away to go and be enslaved. Do you see this, that sort of mindset? Are, are the planes going to come and bomb us tonight? That sort of stress or anxiety is what they're living with. And uh, when you're fearful, it's scary. And for them then, 
trusting in the promises of God when living with that sort of level of fear. What will tonight bring? What does tomorrow, what does next week bring? Will we still exist as a nation in 12 months' time? Oh, that's when trusting the promises of God is just a little bit harder. But what will you do? How are you going to respond in challenging times? Uh, well, regular, it's been a few weeks then since we've been in this uh, section of 2 Kings. Uh, just this week and next week, uh, we'll finish it off then in this section of 2 Kings, chapters uh, 1 to 8. Really the narrative of Elisha. Elisha is God's man, God's prophet, God's spokesman. He gets the nickname, the, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. That is, if you've got Elisha with you, you're fine. Because he is God's man. And you see in these chapters here, uh, the, the situations for, for the nation of Israel look terrible. But if you've got Elisha there, you'll be all right. Because uh, he's God's prophet. Two main stories. I don't know if you picked that up. Two main stories. Really chapter 6, uh, 8 to 23. Uh, and then uh, the longer one of the famine uh, and uh, the capital city Samaria being sieged is chapter 6 verses 24 all the way to chapter seven. Two main stories, then two main points. Don't be afraid uh, and don't give up waiting. Uh, and then I'll sneak in a little bit more. Don't mock, that's a sort of third one. But it comes under the second point, really. It's all in that main story. So here's what we'll look at. Don't be afraid because the Lord surrounds his people. And don't give up waiting. The Lord's salvation will come. So that's how you respond in scary times. Don't be afraid. Don't give up waiting. First, in chapter 6 and verses 8 to 23, don't be afraid. The Lord surrounds his people. Now, uh, the king of Aram, uh, or Syria, he's going to war. Now, we met him back in chapter 5. There were border incursions, as I say, and little raiding parties uh, coming in into Israel. These have increased, and so now there is a state of war. So uh, follow with me, uh, chapter 6, verse 8. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I'll set up my camp in such and such a place. I'm going to go here. The problem for him was, verse 9, Elisha, the man of God, sent words to the king of Israel. Beware of passing such and such a place because the Aramans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. And time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. So you get the picture. King of Aram says, right, we're going to set up our camp in whatever it is, Birmingham. And we're going to, he's going to set it up there. And Elisha says, don't go to Birmingham. That's where all the uh, Syrian soldiers are. Rats. Right, we're going to set up our camp in Bristol. Uh, well, don't go to Bristol. That's, that's where the Syrians are. And so whenever the, the, the army moves, they can't track down the is the nation of Israel, their army. Well, this gets infuriating. So verse 11, this enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, well, tell me, which one of us is on the side of the king of Israel? There's a spy. Who's the spy who's telling the king of Israel everything? Well, there isn't a spy, verse 12. None of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel, the very words you speak in your bedroom we're under divine surveillance. The Lord is bugging us wherever we are, even the things you whisper to your wife in the night. He knows. He knows everything. Piddle, or something like that, says the king of Aram, uh, verse 13. Right, we'll go and find out where Elisha is. 
the king ordered, so that I can send men and capture him. I don't know how he thinks that works. No, look, King, we've just told you, wherever we send the army, Elisha and Israel, go, they know. Great, we'll go and capture him with the army. He just, anyway, but well, that's the plan, as good as they can come back with. Well, the report comes, verse 13, he's in Dothan. So the king of Aram, he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. Well, no doubt Elisha knows this is taking place, but he's not fussed. He's not bothered. He remains in Dothan. And I think you have to say from this point on to the end of this section, the the story becomes a little bit of a farce or a comedy. We are meant to read it and go, oh, we were so nervous, we were so nervous. Elisha, he, he's the sort of, the key to victory, and, and Elisha's under threat. Oh, actually, no, he isn't. He really isn't. Elisha is fine. He really is the chariots and horsemen of Israel. But verse 15, so um, Elisha's servant gets up in the morning, pops on the kettle, draws back the curtains, and uh, sees in front of him, verse 15, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city and says to Elijah, oh no, my Lord, what are we going to do? We're surrounded by an army. My Lord, it's like, that's, it's like the end of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. You know, there's just the two of us and we're surrounded and what are we going to do? Uh, should we go down in a blaze of glory? What are we going to do, my Lord? Uh, verse 16, it's quite a response from Elisha. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And I think this verse really is at the heart of the narrative. Don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. You can imagine the thoughts in the servant's head. Not seeing what you're seeing, Elisha. I see an army in front of me, and uh, it's you and me. But verse 17, Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked, and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Ah, well, that changes the odds. A little bit. And then things, well, they get even more amusing. Verse 18, as the enemy came down towards him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness, as Elisha had asked. And then Elisha goes out to them, verse 19, and tells the invaders, this is not the road, and this is not the city. There's a sort of hint of Obi-Wan Kenobi here. These are not the droids you're looking for. This is not the road, this is not the city. This is not the road, this is not the city. It's that sort of sense, I guess technically he doesn't lie. Verse 19, this is not the road, this is not the city. Follow me and I'll lead you to the man you're looking for. Uh, brackets, unsaid, which is me, but I will hand myself over to you just once I've got you nicely surrounded. Uh, and so uh, he takes them to the capital city of, uh, of Israel, the northern kingdom at this time, Samaria, the capital city. Verse 20, after they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so that they can see. Then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked. And there they were, 
inside Samaria. Now, this is not the whole army of Syria, remember. This is a large raiding party, and they find themselves inside the city gates, no doubt surrounded by men with their arrows drawn. And uh, Elisha says, right, here's Elisha, great. Whoops. And they've got a spot of bother on their hands. The king of Israel, Joram, verse 21, he gets very excited. <laughs> shall I kill them, my father? <laughs> shall I kill them? He gets very excited. All these people he was scared of. And Elisha says, no, treat them very kindly. Verse 22, don't kill them. Would you kill those you've captured with your own sword or bow? No, you would not. Set food and water before them so they may go eat and drink and then go back to their master. And so Joram, I presumably, prepared a great feast for them. And after he finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. No, no, don't kill them, says Elisha. Throw luxury at them. Just demonstrate to this raiding party that the Lord is God. He's very generous. He can take away their sight, restore their sight, and feed them extravagantly. No, no, the Lord is a very wonderful God. Just send them away, knowing that. And so at this stage, peace Descends, end of verse 23. There's an end to the raiding parties. Okay, that's quite fun. What do you and I do with this? I guess in the anxieties that we face, the fears, we live in verse 16 with that promise. And unfortunately, we don't get verse 17. So the Lord says to us, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those with them. The Lord says, don't be afraid. I'm with you. And we'd quite like to say, great, can we see that, please? But we don't. We have to believe it by faith. There's something timelessly true, I guess, about verse 16. There are numerous places. Here's the most succinct. I guess the Bible would put it. I love this verse, Psalm 125. Uh, it might pop up behind. Psalm 125, verse two. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people both now and forevermore. And actually, if you remember nothing else this morning, if you, you've not read, listen up, and therefore don't know how to listen. Listen to this, okay. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people both now and forevermore. Forevermore. And so hold on to that. The Lord surrounds me forevermore. What a promise. What a promise if you're a persecuted church. I do if you read all the, uh, every week in time out, very wonderfully, the office puts in a little something to pray about one church around the world. You read last week, this was just last week, uh, about Niger. Attackers ransacked, looted, and burned a church in the Kosi district of Niger's capital, Niami. I've ever got it pronounced right. Uh, two weeks ago, leaving the building a charred shell, its floor covered with debris and broken and blackened musical instruments. Apparently, Niger's tiny Christian minority is less than 1% of the population. It had been fine until the last decade, where the rise of jihadist groups has led to many being killed. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people both now and forevermore. What a promise when your church has been burned to the ground. What a promise to know that that is still true. What a promise for you and me. We are not facing that sort of scenario. We are not facing troops invading our country. 
The church is not facing invasion. But what a promise for you and for me, whatever circumstances may fill us with fear, when you face, I don't know, just the little things, you face someone being hostile to you because you're a Christian, what a lovely thing to know. When you're scared walking home at night, I don't know. When you're scared outside the operating theater, what a promise to know. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people both now and forevermore. Question, two questions in fact, that occur to me. So verse 16, okay, I can hold on to that. The Lord is with me, he surrounds me forever. Why don't we get verse 17? That would be nice in the moments when we are most anxious, most stressful, most fearful. All of a sudden, a friend comes alongside us and says, Lord, open his eyes, open her eyes, and we see a whole room stuffed full. We see we're surrounded by the Lord's provision, surrounded by the Lord's angels. That would be nice. That would be encouraging, wouldn't it? When someone's being hostile or, or whatever, you're, you're, you're facing the cancer ward, whatever it may be, that would be encouraging. But we don't. And the New Testament would say, well, that's faith. Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is being certain of what we hope for and sure about what we do not see. That is faith. The Lord gives us these accounts that says that this is true, this is what I'm like, trust me. So we don't get our eyes opened to see that we're surrounded, but it's true and we believe it by faith. And then there's a second question, I guess is the other obvious one that strikes me. Why don't we get verse 18? So it's all very well for uh, Elijah and these guys. Uh, okay, it's a really stressful situation. Can you let me see what's true, Lord? Oh, great, I'm surrounded, that's nice. All right, and can I now have instant deliverance from my anxiety right today? The things that are scaring me today, can you take them away, please? Yeah, well, that would be good, wouldn't it? I mean, life would be much easier. Lord, I'm scared, I've got cancer well, look here, open your eyes and see all these angels. Well, that's encouraging. And boom, let me take it away from you. Great. Well, that's really easy. But not that. We don't get immediate relief from the things that scare us. I don't know what that, militarily, financially, medically. And you say, well, why not? And the answer is the one that it always is. I don't know. But the Lord has a better plan. You get hints of that. A sort of striking parallel with the surrounding imagery here. Uh, Matthew 26, Garden of Gethsemane, Peter's whipped out his sword and is chopping ears off. And uh, Jesus rebukes him and says, don't do that. And says, do you not think I could appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal 12 legions of angels Jesus said, Peter, no, not, not that. Of course the, my father could deliver me. If I snapped my fingers, he'd send me 72,000 angels to sort out these people who have come to arrest me here and now. Of course we could do that. But that's not his plan. There's a better plan, that I go to the cross and die for you, Peter, rather than being saved from pain now. So yeah, I'm surrounded by angels, says Jesus but I don't avail myself of them. I just am encouraged that it's true. 
So when we're fearful, you've got to know that. You've got to know that the Lord surrounds his people. And I guess that when we arrive, as, as Christians, when we arrive in glory, and presumably we see the director's cut of our lives, the Lord says, now let me replay your life to you. Uh, and all those situations that you found bizarre and bewildering, you say, well, why do you put us through that, Lord? Why do we have those two years? Why do we have this? Why do we suffer that loss that caused so much pain and, 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 and made no sense to us? When he shows us the director's cut of our lives, he says, oh, do you see how you were surrounded? Okay. It's always true. My promises are always true. Don't be afraid. The Lord surrounds his people. Then we get the second, the slightly longer story. Samaria, the capital city, is under siege. So here's the second thing, how you respond uh, in times of trial. Look, don't give up waiting. The Lord's salvation will come, which is uh, chapter six, verse 24, all the way to the end of chapter seven, really. Don't give up waiting. So peace doesn't last for very long. So the, the, the raiding parties, they come to a close. But verse 24, sometime later, how much? So we don't know. Sometime later, the king of Aram, Ben-Hadad, mobilized his entire army and marched up and laid siege to Samaria, the capital city of Israel. And things are pretty desperate. Verse 25, there was great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter of a cab of seed pods for five shekels, whatever that means. The point is, it's just food is crazily expensive. I mean, it's literally, you can see at the bottom there, dove's dung, a quarter of a cab, you know, 100 grams of dove's dung sells for an extraordinary amount of money. Things are desperate, that's the point. And at the moment, of course, we get to this horrific story of uh, parents eating their kids. Now, if you're a Bible reader, you come to this and think, this is horrible. But God had said this would happen. He had told, particularly Deuteronomy chapter 28, 29, he'd said, look, Israel, if you, if you reject me, it'll go terribly for you. It's a little bit like a parent saying to a child, look, if you, you look, we can't stop you dropping out of school. We can't stop you taking drugs, we can't stop you ruining your life. We can't stop you doing those things. But if you reject us, if you run out of our home, if you reject all of our counsel, life will go badly for you. Well, God had told them that in verses 28 and 29 in some detail. He said, no, you'll, you'll, get, you know, you'll be invaded and you'll be under siege and you'll end up eating children. It'll get that bad. Well, here we are. And it is miserable, verse 26, follow, follow it as we go through. The king of Israel then, Joram, is passing by on the wall. A woman cried to him, help me, my lord, the king. Verse 27 seems a bit petulant. The king replied, well, if God, if the Lord doesn't help you, where can I get help for you? From the threshing floor, there's nothing there. From the wine press, there's nothing there. Verse 28 seems a little more concerned. Then he asked her, what's the matter? She answered, this woman said to me, give up your son so that we may eat him today and tomorrow we'll eat my son. So we cooked my son and ate him. The next day I said to her, give up your son so we may eat him, but she had hidden him. I just don't know what you do with that as a story. I mean, everything in you screams out, 
sorry, you thought you'd, you'd eat your kid before you sacrificed yourself. I mean, I, I just, you know, well, how do you strike up this sort of bargain? I mean, this is quite how miserable the country has become. I think we're meant to hear a little bit of an echo that the high point of the kingdom of Israel, when it said it's most impressive under Solomon, you get a story of two women arguing over one child and Solomon sorts it out with a great wisdom. Everyone goes, oh, that's great. And they say, why? And the kingdom is wealthy. And 2 Kings chapter 3, it's, it all goes well. Here you've got two women arguing over one child and it's just horrible. What are you doing killing your child I mean, well, verse 30, the king, he's not a great king, he's a pretty immoral king, but even this king, as he heard the woman's words, he tore his robes. As he went along the wall, the people looked and they saw that under his robes he had sackcloth on his body. This is a bit curious. Sackcloth, I mean, that's what good kings do. It's a sign of repentance and piety and he's not a good king, Joram, he's a pretty immoral bloke. Verse 31, uh, Joram says the king, may God deal me be, excuse me, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if the head of Elisha, son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Why is he blaming Elisha? I think we get the answer at the end of this little section, verse 33. The king says to Elisha, This disaster is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? It seems as if, while the capital is under siege, Elisha, the prophet, has said to Joram the king, God's salvation will come. You need to repent for how you've lived. Put on your sackcloth, but salvation will come. You just need to wait. You just need to wait. By the time you get to verse 33, the king has said, stuff this, I'm done with waiting. This is just appalling, and he's given up. He waits no more. Elisha's not naive, he does say, he sees the king's on his way, lock the door, the king's going to come and kill me, he's not naive, but presumably he shouts out of the window, chapter 7, verse 1, Elisha replied, so the king says, well, that's, that's it, I'm just done, I'm done waiting, uh, end of uh, verse 33, 6, verse 33, I'm done waiting, why should I wait for the Lord any longer, the Lord's not coming back, you promised me the Lord was coming back, Elisha, he's not coming back, chapter 7, verse 1, presumably shouting out the window, Elisha says, hear the word of the Lord, this is what the Lord says about this time tomorrow. A seer of the finest flour will sell for a shekel, two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. I mean, you don't need to know the detail, but the point is food prices are going to collapse tomorrow because the siege will end. That's what he's saying. Tomorrow, the siege will end. Don't give up waiting. The Lord's salvation will come. And actually, it's coming tomorrow, he says. Now, again, obviously, you and I, we are not living in Israel, in Samaria, under siege in 740 BC. Old Testament Israel was unique as God's chosen nation, this side of the work of Jesus Christ. It's the church internationally that are the people of God, not one nation. But the point of similarity is this. The church is still waiting for the Lord's salvation. That is, we are waiting for Jesus to return. We may not see things as miserable as this. We may not see things as desperate as this. A parent eating their child. But look, we see some pretty desperate things on the news. 
conflicts around the world. I mean, some horrific things still taking place around this planet. And we can see those desperate scenes of a despot poisoning his own nation of children foaming at the mouth, suffering under a gas attack. We can still see those scenes and think to ourselves, what, do you just want us to wait, Lord? Well, how long? You're not gonna come back and sort this out? We may not tear our clothes, we may not put on sackcloth, but sometimes you're just confronted with life which is horrible and you think, well, you're saying wait. That's all you've got for us, Lord, is it? Wait. To which, if I may, I think reverently, his response is, no, that's not all I've got. Jesus says, I am coming. And you know I'm coming back because I have come once before. I have walked around this planet. I have experienced what life can be like here. I know it can be unjust. Oh, look, there's not a historian on planet Earth today, not a historian who would deny that Jesus Christ came the first time. He'll come again. So don't give up waiting. The Lord's salvation, it, it will come. And then just to push that, push that a little bit further, uh, briefly, don't mock. Let's just look at this very briefly. Don't mock. The Lord's word is always fulfilled, which is sort of another way of saying the same thing. But uh, in uh, chapter seven, verse two, to really the end of the story, the focus comes upon the scoffing army officer uh, and then these hapless lepers. So Elisha says, chapter seven, verse one, tomorrow. The siege is gonna end tomorrow. Uh, chapter seven, verse two, the officer on whose arm the king was leaning said to the man of God, oh, yeah, whatever. Look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of, heaven, of the heavens, could this happen? You're having a laugh, aren't you, Elisha? You expect me to believe that? What a ridiculous thing to say. And Elisha says, you'll see it with your own eyes, but you won't eat any of the food. Oh. No doubt he mocks him a little bit further. And then, against this backdrop of such misery, again, I, I think we're meant to read this story and smile. You get these hapless lepers who, um, they're talking, what are we going to do? I don't know, what do, we, what do you think we're going to do? I don't know, what do you think we're going to do? Should we, should, we, uh, should we hand ourselves into the city? If we go into the city, we'll be killed because we're lepers. We can't go into the city. What are we going to do? Should we, well, we may as well just, we may as well go to the, to, to the Syrians, the Arameans, and say, here we are, are you going to kill us or not? I mean, we're going to die, what are we going to do? I don't know, what are we going to do? Let's just go to the Arameans. You have this sort of conversation taking place, verse four. And so verse five, at dusk, they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there. Because, verse 6, 4, the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army. So that's presumably in the night. They'd said to one another, oh, look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So the whole Aramean army has got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and the horses and donkeys. They left the camp as it was and they ran for their lives. Well, verse 8, the men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp and golly, they enjoyed themselves. 
they have a whale of a time. They go to the camp and way. They tuck into the, all the best food they can find. They tuck into the wine. They sit in the chairs. They put crowns on their heads. They put gold in their pockets and say, fellas, we are sorted. Uh, until they eventually come to their senses and say, well, I suppose we ought to let the whole city know that we're no longer under siege. That would be a good thing to do. You get some back and forth. Again, the king saying, oh, we can't believe him. But the emphasis comes right at the end. Verses 17 to 20. You get a bizarre repetition. Verse 17. Now the king had put the officer on whose arm he'd lent in charge of the gate. They hear that all the people hear that there's plenty of food. And the people trampled him in the gateway and he died. Explanation. Just as the man of God had foretold when the king came down to his house. Could we just be clear about this, verse 18? It happened as the man of God had said to the king, about this time tomorrow, a seer of the finest flour will sell for a shekel and two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. The officer had said to the man of God, look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of the heavens, could this happen? The man of God had replied, you'll, not see it, you'll see it with your own eyes, but you're not eating any of it. And that is exactly what happened to him. I mean, this is uh, somewhat redundant repetition. It's as if, you know, every box set or, or TV series, uh, they all get a bit confusing. So at the beginning, you have previously on whatever it is, uh, previously on Elisha and the horsemen of Israel. And, um, but imagine you're watching this thing and... It's a 40-minute show, and halfway through, it comes previously in the first 20 minutes of this episode. Well, we know. We've just seen it. And they show you the same scene over and over again three times. So, yeah, all right. This is, you know, all right. I haven't forgotten it. My memory's not that bad. We get three times. Look, the, the, the officer, he dies, just as God said he would, just as Elijah said he would. And you know the guy who was the king's arm, he was leaning on him, that guy, he died just as God said he would. And you know the guy who mocked Elisha, he died just as God said he would. And you know he said, oh, you know, the, the floodgates of heaven, were he died, that one. You think, yeah, all right, all right, you made your point. Repeatedly, repetitiously, just like that. What's the point? It happened just as God said it would. Look, if you're a Christian, don't be thrown when people scoff at your faith. If you're a Christian, don't be thrown. You know the sort of thing someone will say to you occasionally, oh, how could you believe that this man, Jesus, came back from the dead? How can you believe that? And you say, well, have you ever looked at the resurrection of Jesus, the evidence of the resurrection? No? Well, please don't mock me if you've never looked at it. What could I say? Look, if you're here and you're not a Christian, don't, don't be fooled by the confidence with which some in the world will laugh at Christianity. It is far easier to caricature the Christian faith than it is to actually engage with the man, Jesus Christ. Because when you engage with him, you've got to take him seriously. You've got to make a decision. So it's much easier to caricature than you just keep him at arm's length. But the point here is don't mock because God's word always comes true. Uh, and so don't give up waiting. 
because Jesus will return, his salvation will come. Two stories then. Both encouraging us, when you're scared, can you see the Lord's perspective? Don't be afraid the Lord surrounds his people. Can you see that? You won't see it with your eyes, but with the eyes of your heart, with the eyes of faith. Can you see that? Don't give up waiting. The Lord's salvation will come. You can't see God's clock. But know that he is coming back. We can't see physically that we're surrounded, the Lord's clock ticking down. But we have seen Jesus. We know he's walked this planet. We know what God is like. So we can trust him. Don't be afraid. Don't give up. Know that the Lord surrounds his people. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we do thank you again for strange stories that are meant to get into our heads, meant to get under our skin. And so we pray we will be those, whatever we're facing, that would not be fearful. You would enable us to trust the promises of your word and know that you surround us. You're with us. And Father, would we know also that your promises come true. Your salvation will come. The Lord Jesus will return. So would we not give up, but keep waiting. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.